These days, so many podcast hosts just riff through unprepared segments until they get to the next ad break for pills they know nothing about, cheap razors, and whatever else they can get a buck from. But the Higher Side Chats does it differently. We succeed or fail on the quality of the content and your desire to hear more of it. So you're about to hear another free first hour episode that's here to prove the two hour shows are worth subscribing for. Five shows a month for just $8. Members get a mobile friendly website, a decade of archives, a dedicated RSS feed for the best podcast apps, and a lot deeper discussion than a single hour can allow for. Sponsor free with more for thee. Get a free seven-day trial of THC Plus at thehiresidechats.com. Enjoy! In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Here we go again from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood, and even the people who aren't paying attention are starting to get the special tingle that something isn't quite right. But those of us who are have been wondering if we could really watch our incompetent management class print trillions of dollars without triggering a sharp inflation, if we were really going to send a parade of packages full of billions of dollars in military equipment to Ukraine without some consequences here at home, and if backwards COVID and climate change policies weren't going to exacerbate issues with our already shaky supply chain. It's as if our biggest problems have been engineered and all the government's energy is only going to trying to make them worse. Not good for a nation of citizens that have been conditioned for complete system dependence and have lost most of the crucial skills needed to take care of themselves. And unfortunately, it seems the disastrous consequences of these things might become glaringly obvious sooner rather than later. But lucky for us, we have the man who has the plan, Joel Skousen, with us here today. Joel is a political scientist specializing in the philosophy of law and constitutional theory, and is also a designer of high-security residences and retreats. He has designed self-sufficient and high-security homes throughout North America and has consulted in Central America as well. He is also the publisher of the World Affairs Brief, a weekly news analysis service found at worldaffairsbrief.com. And he's the author of books like Essential Principles for the Conservation of Liberty, The Secure Home, Architectural Design, Construction, and Remodeling of Self-Sufficient Residences and Retreats, How to Implement a High-Security Shelter in the Home, and one we should all have on the shelf, Strategic Relocation, the North American Guide to Safe Places, now in its fourth edition. You can find all of this and more at his website, joelskousen.com, and I hope you have your seat backs and tray tables in the upright locked position because the smooth sailing is certainly over. Let's get into it. The World Affairs Briefer, Preparedness Teacher, and Strategic Relocation Guru. Joel, thanks for being here. And it's good to be with you. First time. Yes, yes. And we are lucky to have you. I've been listening to some of your recent interviews, and as intense as the information is, I think a lot of what you talk about is important for this audience to hear. Many of us are grossly underprepared for hard times, not very self-sufficient, and probably aren't very strategically located either. 
So we got a lot of work to do, but let's start with the need to focus on these things. I mentioned some of those elements in the intro there, but get us started with an overview of the multitude of reasons we need to start taking preparedness and security very seriously, like yesterday. Well, in the big picture, we are dealing with a broad-based globalist conspiracy to take away American sovereignty and get us into a global new world order. This has been going on for at least a couple of centuries. It really started to become focused and invisible about 1900. And they basically used war to move us ever so closer to a global government where we essentially become like the UK under the EU where they regulated every single detail of your life. And that's why the, the Brexit was demand, demanded, even though it was betrayed by the Conservative Party. But in any case, they gave us World War I in order to get us into the League of Nations. That didn't work out because uh, enough of the isolationist tendencies of the United States blocked that. But fortunately for the globalists in the Treaty of Versailles, they had uh, established all the principles that would force Germany to go to war again. They were so onerous on them. And that's where we got World War II. And with it, we got the United Nations a global organization, but most of it was voluntary. That's all they could get at the time. Wasn't any taxing power. There's no regulatory power, no true military power other than voluntary assistance. So they need one more war to get us into a militarized global government. And that war is coming. It's coming with Russia and China, who are in temporary alliance with one another in order to take down the West. And it will be a nuclear war, and it will be preceded by an EMP strike, as is Russian and Chinese military doctrine. And that EMP strike, forget about Iran or North Korea doing that. It takes at least eight or nine weapons to take down the entire grid in the U.S. and Canada. And that will happen about 15 to 20 minutes before a physical strike. And why a physical strike? Why won't an EMP strike alone do it? Well, it takes down the grid and causes massive social unrest and chaos, but the military is fairly hardened against EMP. That's one of the reasons why they took Cheyenne Mountain out of the loop for about three years while they improved all the EMP resistance of that mountain. So everything's in the military is back in Cheyenne Mountain. And so they can still strike back. And that's why they have to have a one-two punch. EMP strike to take down the grid and blindside us. And then a military preemptive strike on U.S. military targets, not cities. They don't want to destroy the economies that they depend on, but they want to neuter the military so they can blackmail the West into submission and they can run their own version of the New World Order. Mm. Well, I love the history lesson. That does seem to be the case in a nutshell. And one of my questions for you was going to be about what the critics say, which is that they feel as though we'll never have a major nuclear war with China because our economies are too interlocked. But as you mentioned, I guess they're not going for the cities. Do they expect Americans to keep buying Chinese products? Well, not necessarily. What they intend to do in that blackmail is that China will control the new world order and dictate who you will buy from. So they basically will mandate that you continue the existing trade relationship with China. Jeez. Man, and so... Since this conflict with Ukraine and 
Russia started. You have said that this is not going to be the trigger event for World War III in and of itself, but it might be part of a string of events that does get us there in a few short years. How do you see geopolitical events progressing from here to the point of an EMP attack and bombs dropping on the U.S.? Well, you have to understand that the United States, there are three predator centers in the world. There's our own Anglo-American globalists who are running this conspiracy to get us into a global new world order that they will control. The EU is the seed stock of that global, and we will see a pattern throughout the entire Western world if we ever get into that global government where they regulate everything as they do in the EU. But in order to get to this third world war, you've got to remember that the globalists have played both sides of several issues. They have funded and transferred technology to both Russia and China from their very inception. The Anglo-American globalists under Jacob Schiff gave $20 million in gold to Leon Trotsky to take back to fund the October Revolution in 1917. The British gave an equal amount of gold, $20 million in gold, to fund the Communist Revolution. So why would capitalists be funding a revolution? especially a communist revolution that is so anti-capitalist, because they were actually globalists, not capitalists. This conspiracy go back, goes back a long way. And ever since World War II, that's where we got into giving Russia and China, having that excuse to give Russia, especially all of that aid during Lend-Lease, even when Americans couldn't buy washing machines or, or irons or any other thing, we were shipping those types of things to Russia as well as military weapons. We built arms factory for them, truck factories. And we even gave them the first batch of enriched uranium to explode their first nuclear weapon in 1949 because they didn't know how to enrich uranium, even though that we also gave them the rest of the new plans to the nuclear weapons that they couldn't steal from the Manhattan Project. All that went through Montana Air Force Base over to Russia at the end of the war when there was no reason for Lend-Lease anymore. And then in 1949, globalist George Catlett Marshall, under the Truman administration, brought Mao Zedong to power in China. We cut off military aid to Chiang Kai-shek to make sure that the communists could win. We brought Castro to power. We brought the Sandinistas to power in Nicaragua, not because the globalists are communists. They believe in using communism to break down the Western social and political world order so they can come into the rescue with their milder form of socialism, which is Fabian socialism. That is, you still own it, but we control it through regulations. And that's, you know, how sophisticated it is. And another th point relative to the Ukraine argument, the people cannot understand Ukraine until you understand the phony fall of the Soviet Union in 1989 and 90. The Communist Party simply went underground. Before they did that, they gave orders to all of their leaders in the Eastern European countries, including Eric Honecker of Germany, to step down and to let the student riots go forward, to bring the wall down. All of this was meant to catch up with the West, gaining aid and trade, faking their own demise, faking that we were like everyone else in Europe. And they did get tremendous aid and trade from the West. Western oil companies rebuilt the entire oil system of Russia, making it one of the largest oil producers in the world and solving their cash flow problem. We also transferred and allowed them to steal a lot of technology 
that helped them build up their high-tech military system. And they, in turn, transferred a lot of that technology to China. A lot of Americans don't also know that Israel has a technology transfer agreement with China. And the U.S. gives, in the name of patriotism, a lot of technology and military technology to Israel, and they sell it to China for a profit. And that's a backdoor once the United States you know, halted a lot of the technology transfers that were going on through the Commerce Department, clear up through the Reagan administration. So this is the problem that people don't understand is that, and there's a lot of conservatives, for example, and conservative and libertarian pundits who really have come to the defense of Russia thinking that because, you know, going back to the phony war on terror, that was another carefully crafted deception. The 9-11 was a deep state operation from the hiring of the terrorists to the loading of the buildings with explosives and bringing in remote-controlled airplanes from the West Coast, which we've documented in 9-11 Pilots for Truth. I'm a former military pilot, by the way, and I have a lot of access into the industry. But the thing that Americans don't realize is that even though the 9-11 gave us the phony war on terror, gave us the excuse to invade Iraq and Afghanistan, etc., we actually built up the terrorist organizations that we fought against. Mm -hmm. We built up al-Qaeda out of the remains of the Mujahideen in the war in Afghanistan. We built up ISIS, taking about half of the Syrian um, terrorists that we had imported from Tunisia and Egypt. And that's one of the reasons why we intervened in Libya and Egypt, is to create a lot of these terrorists that we could import into Syria. They took about half of those and created ISIS, funded them, gave them priority in weapons, established those weapons stockpiles in Iraq, Iraq was frantic on the telephone calling the United States saying, you've got to bomb these weapons depots somebody's planning on attacking. And the U.S. did nothing, of course, because it was their weapons depots for ISIS. Hmm. So Americans don't realize that the deep state created our own terrorist enemies. That doesn't mean there weren't real legitimate terrorists. But the leaders were trained, most of them in Israel. And the leaders were protected at all times by U.S., even in the battles of in Iraq and later on in Syria, the final battle of ISIS, the U.S. rescued the ISIS leaders, their fighters, and their heavy weapons and brought them back to Syria where they can continue to act as Syrian rebels. So you see, geopolitics and foreign affairs is very complex because the U.S. is playing both sides of the coin. It pretends to fight a war on terror. While it foments and builds terror, it foments to or pretends to fight a war on drugs while it imports drugs through the CIA to mostly in years past to fund their black operations. And we've got a lot of trillions of dollars going into space that aren't on the budget. And I think those are having to do with space-based weapons that will be used so that the West can refuse the blackmail after they absorb a nuclear first strike from Russia and China because they can then shoot down any further weapons from space-based interceptors, even though our own interceptors on the ground are ineffective against hypersonic maneuvering warheads. Mm. <laughs> Man, you summarize a lot of complex stuff really well. And of course, when you know the playbook of the deep state and the globalists, you see how often it's repeated. It becomes a little easier to see how it all kind of rhymes. We're talking about different countries and different groups, but there's a similarity here as you laid out. And I think it was an Alex Jones interview where you were talking about how we have built up Russia and China for a long time. 
we, as you said, gave Russia the first shipments of enriched uranium. We gave them the plans. We gave them the miniature ball-bearing missile technology they didn't have. And we've allowed China to steal IP for decades without any consequences. And of course, they are the factory of the world. So I can see that perspective that we've built these countries up to eventually be the enemies of the big end-all, be-all war. And I am curious when you think that might be. Of course, you said the Ukraine thing, not going to be the trigger, but a North Korean invasion of South Korea could be the real trigger for events. Talk to us about why and what kind of timeline you put on that situation. Well, good question. This week, North Korea came out and threatened the use of nuclear weapons again. This is the second time in about three months. They've threatened the use of nuclear weapons if there's ever a war with the U.S. defends South Korea or attempts to attack North Korea. Of course, we have no intention of attacking North Korea, but we know that North Korea does eventually intend to attack the South and finish off the Korean War that was ended in a stalemate because of our U.N. intervention. Um, but the reason why it's a trigger event of World War III and why Ukraine isn't, first of all, we really don't have any significant troops in Ukraine or even in Taiwan that would justify a public mandate that we go in and defend those two countries when they are attacked by Russia or China. But we have 47,000 troops in South Korea. That absolutely requires that we cannot let it be overrun. We must intervene. That makes it the perfect trigger event because if the U.S., you know, the, the military forces in North Korea are so overwhelming, million man army capable of growing to $2 million, uh, 2 million men within about two months with reserve troops, et cetera, versus a puny 50,000 South Korean army of troops, which are very highly trained, but still, you know, a million, million and a half against 50,000 is just no contest. 60,000 artillery tubes aimed at Seoul that could obliterate that city within a matter of days. The U.S. would have to, I believe, use tactical nuclear weapons to stop that kind of effect. And that would justify North Korea using nuclear weapons and China, who controls North Korea, using that as an excuse to finally take out the U.S. military with that preemptive strike. Now, the reason a preemptive strike is a key essential towards getting us into a global new world order has to be understood clearly. And that's why I've talked in my writings for years now about Presidential Decision Directive 60, PDD 60, which is still in force. It was signed in 1997 by President Clinton, and it completely revamped our nuclear doctrine, changing the Reagan doctrine of preparing to win a nuclear war to the Clinton doctrine of absorbing a nuclear first strike and then retaliating afterwards as a gesture of peace, presumably. Well, in 1997, Bill Clinton also mandated that 50% of our ballistic missile submarines be kept in port at any one time to make them more vulnerable as a gesture of goodwill to the Soviet Union that we are no threat. I mean, this is nearly laughable if it weren't so suicidal. But in fact, about 50% of our subs are always imported at any one time in two ports, Kings Bay, Georgia, and Bangor, Washington, in the Seattle area, making those two areas sure nuclear targets in a preemptive strike. But why do a PDD-60? Because you see, it removes launch on warning. Launch on warning means that when our satellites detect missile launches from Russia and China, 
we can launch our missiles before they arrive. It takes about 20 to 30 minutes for missiles to arrive on target. In the meantime, we can launch our missiles, and their missiles, which can't change course once they're in their ballistic trajectory, hit empty silos, and ours hit live targets. So the one who launches second in a nuclear war is the one who wins. Well, PDD-60 removed launch on warning, and it's still top secret, but a declassified summary was given by Craig Cedernillo of Arms Control Today, who I believed helped write it. He's an anti-nuclear fanatic. He helped write it, and he debunked a Washington Post article saying, oh, don't worry, we can still launch on warning. He says, no, you can't. It absolutely mandates you absorb a nuclear first strike and then retaliate afterwards, prompting General Butch Neal of the Marine Corps to say, retaliate with what? Hmm. Well, you say our ballistic missile submarines, but remember that those missiles have very small warheads, even though they have multiple independent targeting warheads. They can't hit hardened targets like Yamato Mountain or all of the underground tunnels, the 3,000 tunnels that China has harboring their missiles. And so, what I believe is the import or the reason for putting in PDD-60 is to decapitate our military willingly so that our leaders come out of their bunkers and say, now we have no way to protect ourselves or prosecute this war of aggression from Russia and China unless we join together in a militarized global government. Now, you can see after Brexit and all the other anti-globalist information and, you know, around the world, Americans would never voluntarily give up sovereignty and join a militarized global government unless there was such a Pearl Harbor type situation. And I think this situation, the absorbing a nuclear strike will make 9-11 look like a picnic and it will, especially with no electricity, Americans will say, do whatever it takes to save us. There would be no resistance whatsoever. Mm. So timeline-wise, you asked, Yes. I don't think this happens until Russia and China are ready. Now, Russia has shown in the Ukraine war that it literally has an incompetent conventional military. It cannot do combined air warfare and air ground tactics. That's a very sophisticated military doctrine which allows you know, one country to control and find the difference between all of the aircraft coming in that are friendly versus foe and ground troops and drones and coordinate so that none of that stuff collides. And Russia simply couldn't do that. That's what Ukraine showed. They could do either ground or air or drones, but nothing together. And they throw missiles into the mix, you know, and they had to ground everything else so that nothing else got hit. Well, the U.S. can do that. And that's one of the strong points of the F-35. The F-35, despite all of its flaws, is capable of coordinating, you know, over a hundred targets and aircraft in an area, and each one of those aircraft can almost act like an AWACS. And so that's what allows the United States and NATO to do combined warfare to a degree that Russia and probably China cannot do yet. Now, that said, Russia's course is a strong point is that it has the most missiles, nuclear missiles of the world, and missile delivery vehicles. With the new Sarmat 2 missile with 15 maneuvering warheads, utterly unstoppable. And then I believe we're just starting to deploy the Sarmat 2. And China is, is really working on its whole full range of military capability, including aircraft carriers. 
as well as missiles. I don't think they're going to be ready for another probably two to three years at the earliest. So I'm projecting timeline that we probably have until the latter part of this decade before this war becomes imminent. Now, I'm not saying that people ought to delay their preparations. Even if we have three years, it takes about three years to really get fully prepared if you haven't started. So, <laughs> um, you know, it's a blessing that it isn't imminent. Then I don't think the Ukraine war will, in fact, I know it won't go into a nuclear war because Russia can't do the strike on the U.S. until China's ready because China has the manpower capability to occupy countries. If you just nuke them and you have no ability to occupy, then they simply rebuild over time and they come back at you. You've got to occupy to keep them you know, from rebuilding their military strength, which we would do even if our military was nuked and the civilian infrastructure was preserved. Mm -hmm. So there is no such thing as throwing a nuke at England or France or at a military base to threaten because it would invite retaliation. Indeed, the public would demand retaliation. So they can't nuke. It's an all or none situation. You either throw all your nukes out there and decapitate the enemy or you don't do it at all until you are ready. And that's why I'm projecting that this won't be ready until both Russia and China are ready. Russia will never have the military manpower that China will have, and China probably won't have the military nuclear throw weight that Russia has. So they need to work together. Now, that said, they're still enemies at heart. Russia knows that they'll have to go head to head with China after they eliminate the West. That's why they have, have stopped sending any high technology transfers to China for the last 10 years. That's why China's now got stolen enough technology through, you know, all of the technology deals that they've done with the stupid American companies that started to build their product over there, that they're building and they have their own high-tech industry now. But it's still a matter of time. They're both building and in a major building project, and it won't probably be ready for at least three to five years. Hmm. Yeah, well, you are right about the preparations needing that. And I do want the bulk of this to be about preparations, but a couple other counterpoints I would expect to hear is that, you know, when you talk about nuclear strikes, some people will say, well, this is just dusting off Cold War propaganda. They will say Putin is a lot more reasonable than the American media and deep state want to believe. They paint him as an irrational tyrant with a bloodlust, even though that isn't necessarily true, that Russia and China don't want international war like the globalists do, but maybe there's puppet strings being pulled at a higher level. And I've heard you say that the U.S. intelligence apparatus knows that Russia and China plan on a nuclear first strike and that all of Russia and China's operations for the last decade start with a simulated nuclear attack with the U.S. And I mean, if we learned anything in the past couple of years, it's that pay attention to the simulations they run because sometimes they mirror real events in the very near future. But what would you say to some of those counterpoints? Because we're really making the case that this is not just a guess. This is a pretty major certainty before we get into the preparedness stuff. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I can tell your audience, I'm 100% certain we'll be at war with Russia and China. 100%. There's no doubt in my mind. They aren't building those weapons of mass destruction for nothing. And they are both still communist countries with a hatred, a DNA hatred for the West. Now, in terms of 
the three points. First of all, this, uh, the Cold War mentality. Well, first of all, the phony fall of the Soviet Union was as useful to the globally, globalist in telling Americans that we won, Reagan did it, conservatives, we can relax because you won the war. Well, we didn't win the war. They simply went underground. We didn't win the Cold War. They simply realized they weren't ready yet. And in order to get ready and to get ahead, they faked their own demise. Now, in terms of benevolence, there's a meme going around through conservative circles that Russia, that Putin is a Christian because he's giving support to the Orthodox Christian Church, that he's a really a fine person. Our globalists are evil because they're against him. And anybody our globalists are against must be a good guy. And that's very naive and very stupid. Who is to believe that a KGB colonel has been a secret Christian all his life? You just can't rise to that level in the KGB unless you have an inherent hatred of all things religion and a love of Marxism, etc. And people don't realize that in the Soviet era, the, uh, the, the, the Russian communists had plants within all throughout the Orthodox um, uh, church there in Russia and controlled them. That's why they didn't shut it down. It became a controlled church. And so there's still that underground control and collaboration between the Orthodox Church, maintain their peace. So, you know, this so-called support for Orthodox Christianity is not what it seems to be. And besides, Putin is hostile towards all evangelical Christian groups, uh, um, um, Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, Mormons, other people are outlawed and banned now in Russia. And so, you know, no real Christian would take that particular attitude. But this is a great deception. You know, people have to understand that the communists live by deception. The whole phony fall of the Soviet Union was carefully crafted. And we are, you know, Putin is following along. In fact, the Ukraine attack was part of the playbook of the Soviet Union always intending to win back its satellites and rebuild the Soviet Union as part of the Commonwealth of Independent States, and Ukraine was first on the list. Now, you might say, well, then why are the globalists, if they want this war with Russia, why are they helping Ukraine fight Russia? Well, as I've long said in my World Affairs brief, that prior to the war coming, the globalists have to stop placating the Soviets, as they did all through the Soviet years. They have to stop helping China. They have to stop treating them as enemies. So they can't be, they can't be accused of fomenting this war and being on the other side. So when this war starts, they say, oh, look, we've been enemies of China or Russia now for the past five years. And now we're turning to be enemies of China. This has to happen before. And that's why I say that's a prelude, the fact that they used, in fact, they started early because Trump won the election very unexpectedly. They expected to win because of vote fraud. It wasn't enough to overwhelm the you know, bad feeling against the Democratic control of Obama. But they pulled out the Russia card early so as to discredit Trump. They hadn't intended to do that probably till about now. But in any case, that's why they started on the anti-Trump thing. It was part of their motive of getting rid of Trump, uh, anti-Russia Russia thing, part of the motive of getting rid of Trump. Mm -hmm. Now, as for China's benevolent purposes, because they supposedly have moderated and become semi-capitalist, they've only done this, of course, in order to gain aid and trade so they could build up their military. 
I published in the World Affairs Brief, courtesy of the Epic Times, who got a leak of the speech of General Hao Tian, the former defense minister of China. And I tell you, this speech is just horrendous. He talks openly to his communist cadres of how we are going to be ruthless when we take over America. We are not going to be patsies like the Nazis. And he calls the Nazis, you know, soft. He says, we are going to be ruthless. We are going to eradicate all the opposition. If we don't get compliance, you know, we're going to use biological, other weapons and every arsenal in our viewpoint to, you know, get living space for Chinese in Russia, in, in America and in Canada. They want the living room because China has run out of arable land. They can't feed their people anymore. Most of China is desert. And they desperately need, and they talk in general, how Tian talked about it. We need Lebensraum. We need living space. And they intend to take the West. So forget about these benign, naive feelings that Putin's a nice guy and that, that Xi Jinping is a nice guy. These people are ruthless communists and they are going to attack the West someday. Mm. Well, I think that's a good rebuttal. And Geopolitics aside, it does seem like the globalists and our own government are engineering a collapse right here in a lot of ways economically through pandemic lockdowns, soon to be maybe climate lockdowns or a monkeypox lockdown, the sabotaging of our own supply chain and food processing plants seem to be catching fire and blowing up. They're killing livestock in mass. They're killing chickens because of bird flu concerns or pigs because of disease concerns. So there is a lot going on and a lot to suggest you can't depend on the normal system. You can't depend on food to be in the grocery store potentially in the near future, regardless of this stuff. There's a lot of reasons to be very concerned about the near future, we could just say. And with that, what are some of the first strategic steps people listening should take? Well, let me comment, first of all, about the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset as a threat. Sure. It's very important to realize that not everybody at the mid and bottom levels of the globalist conspiracy knows that there's a war coming up. Only the top leaders know that, the very, very top. It would scare the hell out of their underlings if they knew with all their plans for AI and robotics and, a, you know, you'll never own anything and everyone will be happy that all that's a pipe dream. That war is going to change all of that, even for the naive globalists who have this euphoric vision of the all-controlling, you know, government and economy. And, you know, part of the Great Reset in destroying the Western economy is so that they can come in with their globalist, all-controlling solutions. But I don't believe that people are going to buy that voluntarily. They're just going to be mad as hell. When you start having, you know, real food supply chain, you start starving to death and they're going to blame the globalists. And that's one of the reasons why the top leaders have war as the ultimate solution, because war destroys all complaints. Everybody just says, save me. And in fact, one of the great blessings of this war coming that it will destroy the hypothetical image that the globalists have about an AI robotic controlled society where you all have independent secure income and that robots will do all the work, etc. Look, that takes full uninterrupted supply of electricity. It takes peaceful, good people. We are deteriorating so fast as a Western society that it's just an impossibility. You're never going to have enough peace. In fact, when this war comes, I don't think 
the West will knit back together as we know it today. I think we've seen the end of the good times. They're never coming back. That's a very negative proposal, but I believe that evil will begin to fight against evil and the globalists themselves won't be able to control what they have what they have created. And that's all the more reason why people need to take preparation very seriously. Because if we're never going back after the war to a complete well-greased or an oiled society where you're shipping food from California, everything, you need to talk about long-term preparedness, not just preparing for a nuclear war. And that is important. You've got to be prepared for fallout. I mean, forget about you know, living next to a military base and preparing. You need to move and relocate. You don't want to be near a nuclear target. And that doesn't include the major cities, only those that have major military bases. But the biggest weapon long-term against you is population density. And I cover this very, very completely in strategic relocation. You look at where the high-density population chains are in this country, and you've got to be hundreds of miles away from that because once a nuclear or EMP strike hits and there's no electricity, you know, after three to five days, people are going to start to pillage because they're running out of, there's no food left. Everything's been stripped out of the grocery stores. There's no electricity. There's no water. The sewers are backing up. People are going to start fleeing the major cities. And you don't want to be in that refugee flow. As Gary North said, you know, you don't want to ever try to be on the last train out of Dodge when things are collapsing. You've got to prepare in advance relocate. You know, fortunately, there's a lot of people that can re work remotely to now. Now, you know, strategic relocation is a bestseller on Amazon simply because there's so many people now that can relocate that before said, I'm tied to Chicago with my job. Well, I say to the people who, who have jobs in the big cities that are dangerous, it's inevitable that you have to leave sometime. And so you've really got to pick your time. Because you don't want to leave in refugee flows where it's like Katrina and the, the freeways are blocked with cars that have run out of gas, etc. You want to pick your time and you want to be able to get out when times are peaceful and have some advanced knowledge of when things And that's one of the reasons I published the World Affairs Brief is so that people can have advanced knowledge. And I've got a very, very good track record of predicting what globalists are doing and why economic collapse isn't happening yet. It hasn't happened since they've been predicting it in 2010. It is getting close, not a collapse, but a recession. The collapse doesn't really occur, by the way, unless you have war where people can't go to work, they can't maneuver, they can't do anything except survive. So the first big thing in, in relocation is to either get out of the city and start to work or get new jobs or you know, something in a smaller town or in rural area. And if you stay within the city, at least move to the periphery of the city so that you're out of the refugee flow. So you can be the first one out of town if you have to leave. And unfortunately, cities keep expanding. And so new subdivisions can get to you unless you get actually a few miles outside the, sub, uh, the subdivisions and then commute into work. And hopefully you won't be commuting into downtown because if the lights go out when you're in there. You may not be able to get back even to your own home. And then, of course, you need to, of course, prepare for some kind of self-sufficiency. There's two things to look about in preparedness. You can either prepare within your existing residence if you have a basement. And the reason you got to have a basement in an existing residence, you've got to be able to hide your storage or your ammunition or your weapons or whatever you're going to prepare for. 
You've got to be able to secure it because there will be pillagers and refugees flowing through, and they'll eventually get to you after they've pillaged all the other subdivisions. And so you have to be able to either get out of the way, hunker down, and just have it concealed well enough, leave your doors open, and they come through and find whatever you've left up in your shelves, and they move on. You don't want to defend a house like a fortress. They can always roll up a bigger gun and overwhelm you. So concealment and safety in a in a concealed safe room, not a bunker. This is not bomb-proof or blast-proof. If you need blast protection, you need to move, not build a bunker. <laughs> in fact, we encourage people not to use the B word when they're talking to us about you know plans about how to do a safe room. And then if you choose the retreat option, you also need basement space with a concealed hardened safe room. And the reason for that is you don't want to arrive at the retreat and have it already been pillaged, everything stolen. And the best retreat scenarios really are ones where they're in a rural enough farming sector where you can grow. Because I think if we have an EMP strike, it will take almost a year for the electricity to get back on. And that's because we don't stockpile in the U.S. any of the large transformers that transform the thousands of volts of long-distance transmission lines down to 240 usable voltage. And they're all made in China. And it would take a long time to reestablish manufacturing here without electricity. So you're going to have to not only survive the war, survive the pillaging, but then grow food afterwards because you can only stockpile so much without the need to eventually grow more food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great start. Uh, I've heard you talk about the importance of the basement, the fact that a lot of people could build a safe room adjacent to their basement under their garage because no one expects the footprint of the garage to have a basement underneath. That's pretty smart. But if we have an EMP or we just have grid issues in general, what good is it to have a freezer full of meat? You got to have the power to keep that meat going. I guess we should stockpile fuel for some kind of generator i mean there's got to that's like the only thing i can think of if we want to keep our food from perishing we have to have some type of generator is there any that you recommend that is better than others well let's talk about generators in general first of all you're going to go through a lot of fuel just to keep a freezer running which doesn't require much electricity at all by the way so i recommend in my book, The Secure Home, having a dual generator and solar system. You know, if you have a solar system big enough to run everything, it gets very, very expensive. You're looking at a hundred grand at least. And but if you have a generator, for example, a five to eight kilowatt generator that can run your house, charge your batteries, do a lot of things, and run it just twice a day, and use your modest solar system, something you can do if, you know for less than Twenty or thirty thousand dollars modest solar system to keep the computers or the lights or the small electronics working in your home and refrigerators and freezers during the day, and in cloudy weather you turn on the generator so that you don't have to use it very often. You can extend that fuel. Now, in terms of generators, a lot of people buy natural gas generators by Generac, which are sometimes convertible to propane. I've got a Generac generator myself, and they've all got these new computer boards. And I'll tell you, if that computer board goes out, there's no way to run that generator manually. You can't bypass it. That's one of the problems. You know, they've got an electronic distributor on the engine so that you have no way to run it manually or bypass the computer. That's a problem. 
I prefer really diesel generators because the problem with natural gas, of course, is that in an EMP, the pumps will go down and the pressure will be lost. You won't be able to run on natural gas. And if you have a propane backup and a convertible generator that you can switch to propane, you're going to be limited even with a thousand gallon tank to about 800 gallons is what they fill those to. And there's no way to resupply propane except for a powered propane truck. And if they don't have the fuel or they don't have the electricity to operate their propane refilling systems, you're out of luck. Whereas diesel, you see, diesel can be stored. It's got at least twice as much energy as propane and three times as much as natural gas. So you get more BTUs of power out and heat out of uh, out of diesels. The diesels last a long time. And if you, Central Maine Diesel is one of the companies that does, has the best prices of diesel generators, sell a variety. And I like the Isuzu generators out of Japan. Got one of those and they're very, very fuel efficient. And it's very easy to have a farm tank. You know, if you've got any kind of rural property, put a farm tank of 500 gallons or two of them so that you avoid the EPA requirements of buried tanks, and they'll last a long, long time by gravity feed to your generator without pumps. But put them in a shed, not only to keep the heat of the sun off of them so that they're concealed, so that people can't tell that you've got a fuel tank. Good advice. And when it comes to strategic relocation, I know every state in that book gets a zero to five star rating. And we can dig into some of those things in a bit. But broadly speaking, what are the things we should be looking for geographically? What regions of the country tend to be better than others? Well, in the broad picture, first of all, you want to avoid the left and the right coast or the east and the left coast. The high population density and you have tyrannical blue states in most of those areas. California, Oregon, and Washington are no-go states now, even though Oregon and Washington have, and even California has some tremendous good survival sites. They're in a blue state, a radical blue state that will confiscate your weapons and mandate vaccines and all kinds of other nefarious things that will cause you. I mean, it isn't that you can't survive. You can, you know, hide out, but you're going to have to be very, very expert at evading government intrusion if you're in those three states. Same thing with New York. Tyrannical state, even though upstate New York has a lot of rural areas that provide a lot of potential safety, but it's in the state of New York, and those people are fanatics about control. And the problem also, and of course, in the East Coast, all up and down the Northeast, is this population density. Boston, with its millions, for example, when they empty out, is going to invalidate at least the southern half of Vermont and New Hampshire and Maine and clear through the Berkshires and other places in in the mountainous regions with refugees. New York, when it's empties out with Philadelphia, is going to go all the way through to Ohio. That's why in the East, I give a fairly high rating to Pennsylvania north of I-80. It's very desolate. There's very little, no big towns at all, hardly, other than you know Buffalo to the far west or of New York. But generally, that's you know, a fairly good safe zone if you have to be and have a retreat site in the East Coast. The South is a problem in the sense that one, the climate is often not conducive without air conditioning. Florida is a, a zero-rated state. 
and a lot of people, you know, are attracted to Florida because of the warm climate. But boy, I'll tell you, you don't want to be in Florida in the summertime without air conditioning. It's just a hellhole. A lot of insects, difficult to grow in many parts of Florida. And the worst thing about Florida, there's only two ways out of the state. It's a long peninsula and there's only two major freeways leading out and they're going to be clogged. So it's going to be very difficult to get out of the state unless you have a boat. And a boat in a survival situation, a slow boat, is a problem because of piracy, which will escalate during wartime. And it's hard to outrun a, a fast pirate boat, you know, with a sailboat. So Florida is a zero-rated state. And although, you know, if you have to be anywhere, be in the panhandle in the where you, even though you've got to avoid the Pensacola area, but the panhandle provides at least some way to get into the other southern states of Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana. None of those are very good in the southern portions, but when you get up in the northern parts of the states, you get a little drier up into the pine forest and you can find some good retreat areas. Mm -hmm. The highest rated area in my book is the Intermountain West, northern Arizona, western Colorado used to be in there. It's now a blue state, so it's not, but Utah, Idaho, Wyoming, and parts of Montana. Western Montana. You don't want to be in eastern Montana because all of the nuclear fallout from the big missile bases in Great Falls are going to go east and inundate that area with massive amounts of fallout. One of the problems you need to be concerned about, of course, is the Seattle area, which is the largest set of nuclear targets in the United States, over you know, 11 military bases in the Seattle area, including the submarine bases which will require ground burst. Ground burst put out a lot more fallout than air burst. And a lot of that fallout's going west or southwest, depending on which way the winds are blowing. And so you've always got to prepare for fallout, even though you may be free from a blast zone. Mm. And so the nice thing about the highly recommended areas of the Intermountain West is they all build basements in the homes or most homes. And so it's it's ready to move into, and you, it's the cheapest way to get a, a concealed safe room is to do it in an existing basement. Wall off in concrete blocks a portion of the basement and conceal it, and it's the most economical way to do that. Great advice. Very practical, very logical. Yeah, and if people don't want to prepare now, you have said that, you know, if we see that North Korean invasion into South Korea, as a trigger event, we got about two or three weeks before everything really hits the fan. And, you know, if you aren't ready to move yet, be ready when that happens, because that could be a major catalyst. But, man, this has just been super informative as well as intense and concerning. But I don't think a, a show dedicated to being prepared should be seen as a bad thing. It's just being prepared. Uh, but let the people know about your website, the books, the weekly newsletter, if they want to stay plugged into your perspective going forward. Well, thank you. My newsletter, The World Affairs Brief, comes out every Friday. It's a um, modest $48 a year. I know people aren't used to paying for information, but I can tell you it'll save your life someday. And I hope for it to provide early warning for war, which will be worth its weight in gold. You can if you go to worldaffairsbrief.com, you can click on the left-hand side to request a sample and you'll get the current brief. And my other website, joelscalson.com, is where all my books are, The Strategic Relocation, The Secure Home, which is 700 pages, and 
everything from A to Z in preparedness, from generators to solar to safe rooms to bulletproofing walls, windows, and doors to food supply to dealing with relatives to you name it, it's in the secure home. And the high security shelter book is people's cheapest option on how to build a, it's got architectural plans on how to build a secure room in an existing basement, which is cheaper than building from scratch. So all three of those books. And there's another book called 10 Packs for Survival. And it's got a barter list as well as 10 areas of, of stockpiling for you to start on your way to preparing. Nice. Well, I can vouch you've got a lot of material and it seems like you've thought it all through quite well. So thanks again. It has been a real pleasure. Stay safe out there and take care. Well, thank you very much. Good to be with you. All right. Uh, well, now that we're all breathing in brown paper bags, waiting for the inevitable death spiral, what do we think? <laughs> I kid, I kid. This is Definitely serious stuff, and Joel is so thoughtful and tactical that I find it really impressive. He really is one of the great survival experts, and based in America means he knows our geography really well and our political climate, so he can factor those things in. And it's just fun to pick his brain because I don't think in these terms very often, although clearly I'm starting to more and more, and I suspect I'm not alone. We recorded this just before old Nancy flew over to Taiwan for God knows what reason. Check up on her investments, get a CEO or a scientist killed. I've heard a few different angles on the whole thing, but of course the simplest is just to poke the bear. Gotta keep those tensions high. But I also know this episode comes up a little bit short. I could only get Joel for 90 minutes, so I made the rare exception where we just do it and make it a 45-45 split. Not my favorite thing to do, but there are some people where I really just want to get their perspective on the THC record, and Joel is one of those people, and this is what it takes. I'm sure there will be some complaints about being negative or Joel doling out the fear porn kind of thing, especially on the heels of the Derek Bros show, but I just look at it as a mental exercise in scenario planning. And history is full of times when a population should have been prepared for tough times. And why should we suspect that that could never happen in our lifetimes where we live? Seems naive to me. But Joel is one of the most respected people in the prepper community, as far as I know. There are those people that have said, well, Joel's been making these kind of predictions for a long time. Sure. Globalist playbooks and globalist timelines can sometimes be extended more than we think, but it doesn't mean that the events predicted are wrong just because they're off a few years. Some other critics say, well, Joel is a Mormon, and pretty much anyone who is faithful to the Abrahamic religions is always kind of looking through an end times lens. And I don't really think that's it. Exactly, but of course, we all have our perspectives, and those perspectives are informed by our experiences, our research, and yeah, our faith as well. It's good to know why a person thinks the way they do and what they're driven by and where they come from, but some people also get a little over obsessed with their analysis of certain people in certain fields. Having read through strategic relocation in full, and obviously a lot of the information in this interview revolves around the same topics, I appreciate his perspective a lot. 
And maybe I'm just one of these people who likes rankings and ratings and lists. But going through the 50 states and seeing why he puts them where, to me, that was pretty enjoyable. Because even before we talked, I have my lists of the places I'd be willing to move. And I don't have star ratings like he does, but I have been keeping top 10 lists of things I care about and then cross-referencing them. Some of those lists are the top 10 states ranked by fewest COVID restrictions. I found an article of the top 10 states to start a farm. I keep an eye on the top 10 states with the lowest tax burden and a list of legal weed states. The place I eventually move will probably be on as many of those lists as I can get. But with the limited time we had, it felt right for me to get Joel's assessment of why we need to start thinking and strategizing in these ways first. The geopolitical climate, the way the dominoes seem to be falling. He's looking a few stages ahead and saying, yeah, a storm is certainly on the horizon. So I had to start there and let him get that out to justify the real deep dive into how and where to prepare for this type of scenario. But with that, I also wanted to make sure I gave him time to respond to what I would consider the major counterpoints to some of his geopolitical arguments. I had to jam like three of them up into one just to cover the spread, but that means we didn't leave a lot of time for what I think is the best part of his work, the strategic relocation part. For first-hour listeners, of course, is what I mean, because that is so, so much of the Plus Show. We talked about the criteria considered for Joel's state ratings, the biggest upgrades and downgrades from the third edition to the fourth, Joel's international relocation advice, he is quite knowledgeable in that area, China and Central America, and I asked him for a deep dive into his Missouri assessment, and we talked about how As I learned from his work, Missouri is apparently a hub for CIA front companies, or historically it has been. Who knew? It was actually a pretty interesting place under the boring surface. So, you know, I like the first hour show to be pretty well-rounded, but it is what it is today. I try to never really be withholding of the free listeners, but I'm trying to get paid for my work too, you know? I think we have a great curation of guests, and I try to be as informed as possible going into interviews, and I try to be very methodical and make sure we fit in as much as possible. And then I just cross my fingers that that's enough for you to think we stand out enough in the crowd to contribute that eight bucks a month and hear the full shows as they're really designed to be. But you've heard the pitch before, and I still think the best pitch is not to make it like you're doing me some sort of favor or charity. But if you like the show, you spend your time listening to these interviews, you know I'm going to bring some heat with an extra hour. That's where all the details are and where the elaborations are. It's just the nature of conversation. So really, just treat yourself. But Gordon had actually sent me a recent interview of Joel's, and that's what set me off to get him on. Funny enough, I did try to get Joel on THC back in 2013, but he was traveling through Central or South America at that time. But nine years later, we got him. And if I had to choose, I'd rather it be now. And this one pairs really nicely with David Dubine and Jeff Harmon and Derek Bros. All have a different tone and bring a different personality to the material and take a different angle. But ultimately, they're saying very similar things. And don't worry, I do have more totally random and unrelated shows in the works as well. 
But how can we not just make sure we hammered home how serious the world is right now and how unstable our traditional systems are getting? Engineered, sure, but knowing who to blame doesn't really keep you fed. So knowledge is important, but if it doesn't drive some kind of action, what good is the knowledge? Is it better than full-blown ignorance? Maybe by a very slim margin, but I could make a good argument that it's worse, too. You'll certainly be kicking yourself harder than the dumb guy who just goes to work and thinks, gosh, who could have predicted such things would ever happen? He's already let himself off the hook. But sorry it's on the short side. The material was worth it to me. Sometimes they go long, sometimes they come up short. But we go long more than we go short, so I'm all right with it. But as always, we got to look at the calendar at HiresideMeetups.com and see where the people are meeting. It looks like we still got Monday, August 22nd, sunset by the vast conspiracy in Venice Beach, California. Saturday, August 27th, the London, UK meetup has a location now. They're going to Little Creatures Brewing in King's Cross. What a good name. Seems appropriate. Very on brand. I like it. If you're in London, I hope uh, you end up there. And then next we have Saturday, September 3rd. The Conspiracy Theorizers at High Springs Brewing in High Springs, Florida. That might be the first Florida event, but seems like a good time if you are in the area. And we'll leave it at that. But I do see a lot of comments or people asking on the forums or the Telegram group, hey, any THC fans from X, Y, or Z here? And when I see that, it's frustrating because we have this calendar and you got to think only 5% or less of the THC audience is going to see that message. And then on the off chance that someone is local, the back and forth of common threads is not a very effective way to communicate. If you want to know who's local, put a meetup on the calendar. It's free. There's no risk. Just go get a beer with a buddy and let the people know where that place will be. And I'll read it on the show to everyone, and then locals will probably show up. And now you know each other, and you can make the meetups ongoing if you want, like some groups have. I consider the value to be networking and sharing local resources and information, but if you just want to make it like a THC book club, well, you got five new episodes to talk about every month. So many people end up with thoughts about an episode and then nobody to talk to about them. You can fix that today by making an event at HiresideMeetups.com. And that's the show. Big thanks to Joel. I appreciate the attention he puts into making his assessments geopolitically, locationally, and in terms of preparedness strategy. I do read his World Affairs Brief, and as a member of his site, I get access to the ebook of Strategic Relocation so I can get the most up-to-date version and access to a network of real estate agents that know Joel's work and help people find the right kind of properties, a resource I probably will utilize. But I hope you found this useful and that you do something with it. I'm getting out of here. I've done my part. Your move, World War III pushers, globalist game players, and crisis contributors. Your fucking move. I won't take it. No, I refuse. If it's all right. My refuge, I've been scheming of bigger things and have to leave my old life behind. Gotta transfer to the inner earth. I built a box, built a home, got a neat elevator going under. And now you'll find me in the bunker.
is another show complete. Remember, as much as you enjoyed this, which is just the free first hour, I hope you'll become a Plus member to hear the full two-hour interviews. You also can engage with other Plus members in the comments and the forums, and you'll find your answer to one of the most common questions I get, which is where can I find those cover songs that you use at the end of the show? Well, they are free downloads for Plus members too. And without Plus members, I can't hire the occasional musician to bring these odd cover song ideas to fruition. Plus members are how I'm able to do what I do without ads and without the big machine being on my back. We can fit so much more into a two-hour interview, and I do my best to make it worth your time and money. The conversation only gets deeper, weirder, and more controversial in that private hour. How could it not the way things are going? But the best way to sign up is at thehiresidechats.com where new first-time subscribers always get a free seven-day trial because I'm just that confident. There's no PayPal on the website, but if you need to use PayPal, then sign up through Patreon and you get all the same episodes. Our website is a credit or debit system, but you can also scope out the other options like a few various cryptos, cash or check mailed to the P.O. Box, and I'll even barter with most people if you have your own business and produce something nice that my wife or kid or taste buds might like. But the architects of consensus reality have made it clear that these themes and topics aren't really welcome on the main stage. And so this is how we secure a little counterculture corner for ourselves, and I hope you'll join Plus because that is the only way it works. Besides, you can cancel anytime right on your profile page. The most common concern I hear is people just being unsure if THC Plus will work with their podcast app, and the answer is probably yes. But if not, we have several high-level app recommendations for whatever phone you use, and the website is made for mobile too. We're trained to tip a waitress for bringing us a sandwich, but that tip doesn't give you access to a second sandwich. 
Really, I'm not asking for any more than that, and I think I offer a better service. Come get your second serving of tasty conspiracy goodness in exchange for that small token of your appreciation. Beyond that, let it also be known that we have grown and survived as long as we have by word of mouth. I don't care so much about social media likes or follows, but tell the right people about THC. And not just listeners, but the high-level figures who are better suited to sit down with me than most other hosts. And if you can help me with any of these things, I can work to bring you better shows, which is just a win-win for both of us. Informative, entertaining, and action-packed. It also never hurts to thank a guest you liked if you have the time either. We want them to know people are listening, so they're willing to come back down the road too. Thank you for spending some time with me, and cheers to a better tomorrow.